Welcome to Uncarcerated. I'm Lee Scott. Thank you for joining us. Each and every week we delve into individuals who are released from various institutions, jails, prisons, uh, mental health facilities. We take a look at the things that got them there and their journey into freedom, the pitfalls, the triumphs, the challenges. I think a lot of times, uh, I think Facebook is really uh, a good example of how we love rags to riches. We like the stories of triumph or tragedy. We just don't like the in-between messy stuff. You know, I think that it's easy to swallow for us that somebody maybe makes a mistake, uh, but it happens again. A lot of us start to get judgmental, wonder if somebody's trying. We don't know all the things that go on while somebody's incarcerated or in a mental health facility or dealing with trauma in their life that makes things difficult to quote unquote get it and I think that you know Facebook is a really good example of people post hey I got this new job heart 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 oh somebody died sad emoji sad emoji sad emoji and you post something that's uncomfortable and all of a sudden people back away from that this show's going to be uncomfortable it's going to be messy it's going to cause you to question how you view things are you looking at people with open minds an open heart? Do you judge people and their value based on how quickly they're able to overcome? How they're able to achieve? Do you determine people's success based on how big their house is or how much money they have? Or do you determine what kind of perseverance they're able to have in the face of great odds? Look no further than our prison industry to sort of illustrate that for us. Shocking report last year by the Department of Justice on how the Massachusetts Department of Correction treats the mentally ill in its custody. It opened the door on that nightmare and gave a voice to the voiceless. And this is just a small example. Massachusetts have the fourth highest suicide rate in prison in the nation. The solution there won't be easy. But what's being done? Are we isolating people? Are we medicating them, over-medicating, under-medicating? Do we have underpaid staff that are treating people punitively when we should be treating people's emotional and mental health issues. So it's an interesting article, the Boston Globe. You can look it up on the marshallproject.org. That's the marshallproject.org. That's going to be a big thing that we discuss tonight with my guest. It's going to be a two-part series. We're going to talk to my friend Daniel about his experiences leading up to going to jail and prison for the first time, Florida's juvenile facilities, and then part two, we'll look at his journey home. But it gets pretty emotional. It gets pretty raw. Uh, we try to take a pause and take a breath to explain some of the ins and outs. Um, sometimes this show can be a little inside baseball because, you know, we want to make sure that if you haven't been behind that wall, uh, if you haven't had that door lock on you, if you haven't had those handcuffs on you, even if you have a friend or a family member, even if you're empathetic to this situation, you donate time and money to criminal justice reform, unless you've been there, it's very difficult to understand the constant stress and constant trauma. And then when you have a mental health problem, where the system breaks down. Most of our incarcerated individuals have mental health issues and they are going untreated and undealt with. And that's, you know, that's why a lot of people use drugs and alcohol, get into bad relationships. That's sort of, um, we've got some shitty survival skills, and you'll hear me talk a lot about that on this show. We're hoping this show is cathartic for the guest, as well as informative for you. So I hope you enjoy uh, this next hour with our friend Daniel here on Uncarcerated. <laughs> Thank you. 
welcome to another episode of Uncarcerated. I'm Lee Scott. I'm your host. Each week on Uncarcerated, we take a look at individuals who are coming home from various institutions, mental health, jail, prisons. Eventually, we'll start looking at freedom and being re-entered, rebirthed into society from any number of things that we feel incarcerated from. Um, bad marriages, uh, long illnesses. I think a lot of people uh, throughout the past year that have been in lockdown or quarantine or have lost family members have felt incarcerated to a certain extent. So we'll eventually extend those conversations to to those types of things and and try to see what the human experience is in re-entering and being brave enough to put yourself back out for a new job, new relationship, new career. But early on in the show, I want to really focus on our criminal justice system. I want to take a look at rehumanizing people. Um, I don't want to use the term inmate or convict on these on these shows. These are human beings who made mistakes. We've got a seriously faulty criminal justice system that locks up more people per capita than any country in the world. We're supposed to be the freest country in the world, yet we lock up more people per capita than China. I mentioned uh, on a previous episode that if you ranked our states as countries, the leading incarcerator in the world would be the United States. And then the next five countries before El Salvador would be states. Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, Texas, Ohio. So we've got a serious problem, and it's a problem on the front end. Why are so many people going? We have mental health gaps. We have a war on drugs, a war on poverty that doesn't treat people like human beings. Uh, obviously, an unfair playing field. People are, are set at a disadvantage and then use poor survival skills that get us into addiction, theft, drug sales, bad relationships, domestic issues. So on the front end, in our social system, our social structure, our, our criminal justice system, we're, we're putting people at a disadvantage. Then we're just locking them up, and then the recidivism rate is off the charts. And that's going to be the primary focus of this show is, you know, for a few minutes we want to get to know somebody. How did you get wrapped up in this, like, La Brea tar pit of the criminal justice system? It's, like, sticky. You can't even get it off you. And then the main focus is, what did it look like upon your arrival home? And I'm really, really lucky tonight for a couple of reasons. One, I've got a brother to me in the room with me. And the other reason is, I've got somebody in the room with me for the first time. This this show has been interviews over the phone up until this point, but I'm lucky enough to have one of my best friends, Daniel's here with me tonight. Daniel, what's up? How are you, brother? How is it? Good, good to be here. I'm glad you're here, man. I like what you're doing here. It's awesome, too, by the way. It's... Uh high time that somebody has done something like this to really kind of take a look at, at the realness of it and the, you know the individual situations and try and find a pattern here which obviously the criminal justice system you know I'm not I'm not placing any blame or anything but we know that you know that is a good place to start you know that's the common denominators anybody who gets in trouble that's where they're going so we need to, to fix that before we can start fixing individuals obviously so Daniel and I were together Daniel and I were together for almost three years at the same place in Florida. Um, so I want to hit the rewind button. Uh, Daniel, where did you where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in Connecticut, uh, raised in New Hampshire, and my family uh, all pretty much at once decided to move down to Florida. And I was 12 at the time. Um, we moved down to Florida, me and my mother, um, her husband, and my little sister's father. Uh, we all stayed at my uncle's house for... Um, for a little bit until my mom could get you know us out on our own um initially my sister's father was a very negative influence um wrapped up in drugs uh he was actually in new hampshire where they met because he was running from you know some stuff out of georgia um but anyways my, my mom was uh into drugs as well so they were you know present in you know in, in my upbringing in my childhood um and also, like, me and my brother were both kind of treated as, um, as you know, the redheaded stepchildren, no pun intended, but I mean, that's that's really kind of the, the role that we played. Uh, I remember I was, like, 14, I think, and they left us home, me and my brother, uh, home and took my sister to Disney and to Universal Studios and just that, you know, I mean, I remember that was one of the first memories as a kid where, like, I just got the feeling, like, I'm not wanted here, you know, and this is, you know, it's my home. Uh, and, I, and, you know, it played on me. I never really felt home anywhere. Um, so I was out, you know, I, I 
didn't even graduate high school. I got my uh, GED and took the HSCT in a juvenile program. So the problem started really early. You know, I was leaving home. I was doing drugs. I was drinking at an early age, 15, 16. I went to my first juvenile program. Um, uh, I went to actually two juvenile programs before the age of 18. And when I turned 18 in one of the programs, I was released shortly after. But I was given a high school diploma when I left there. So... It was basically you're done with the juvenile system. Uh, ho- hope you know what you're doing. Um, but I wasn't really taught any any skill sets. I wasn't taught any any way to provide for myself. I was just you know put in school and made to get you know my my degree and that was it. So uh, I get out of juvenile program. I'm 18 and I may be out for not even a full year, and I get in trouble. And I spend the next, like, nine months in the county jail, and I was sentenced to prison for the first time for three and a half years. Um, All right, so I want to I take a pause there because there's a couple of really key points that you hit on that I, that I want to dive deeper into. So we, we've gotten up through your childhood, um, moving from Connecticut down to Florida at the age of 12. That is a big enough impact on anybody that's got a normal, stable home life. You know, ripped away from your childhood friends, sent down to Florida, which is a completely different place than anywhere else. I mean, it's, you know, this place is legendary for like, I threw an alligator on meth inside of Wendy's car car drive through. You know, yeah. it's just crazy. And so you're plunked down here. <laughs> Add on top of that, that there's drugs and alcohol and some instability at home. And you hit on this word home. You never felt like you had a home. And I'm imagining that the warm blanket of drugs and alcohol or, uh, you know, you probably, if I'm guessing correctly, have an overdeveloped sense of humor, adaptation, the ability to go from one group in the hood to another group of skaters to another group of people and kind of like blend in, finding your family everywhere and nowhere, finding your home everywhere and nowhere all at once. And I, I just wanted you to maybe like expand on that and and it sort of explain what that feeling is like of of never really feeling like you had a family or a home. Well, you you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Uh, and really, thank you. I'm really good at stuff like that. So thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was rough. And um, I mean, I, I would just want to say this: I'm coming from a place where I know what that feeling is now, so I I can look at it subjectively because I'm you know, but it was. It was odd. Um, you know, I, I get out of school and, you know, you get out of school and you're supposed to go home and I dreaded it. I didn't, you know, I dreaded getting off of the bus and, and going home. And I was there as little as I could be. You know, I I stayed with friends more often than I stayed at my house. Um, I didn't, I just, I, I never, never wanted to be there because I felt like I wasn't wanted there. And why would I want to be in a place where I feel unwanted? You know, it's just not a good feeling. So. So you and I took different paths to the criminal justice system. Um, you, you know, yes, yeah, I, I huffed duster and stole my own car. You know, I mean, <laughs> this happens to everybody, really. So, um, but you know, I, I, I had a similar experience in my childhood in that the divorce of my parents affected me at at thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Uh, I, I never felt home. Uh, I, I feel alone in large crowds. I have sort of that like fish out of water feeling, but I managed, uh, I was a young single father at 18 and that probably, uh, saved me from getting in trouble because, you know, for the next 15 years or so, I just had this tremendous Uber responsibility. When I look back on my life though, I think I was white knuckling it often, you know, thinking that the world was going to fall apart, just like my parents' marriage fell apart when I was a kid and I couldn't save it. That's what's going to happen if I don't save the relationship I'm in, the kids, you know, everything around me. And eventually my wife passed away and uh, the world did fall apart for me. And I get in trouble and I find myself with you uh, in prison in Florida. And I remember the feeling, I was gone for five years and I remember coming home and I my first experience like my second day out I go to Target and you met me up at Target and you looked at me like dude take a deep breath I was just completely overwhelmed just I didn't know what size pants I wore anymore I just didn't know I didn't know how to shop I just didn't know how to do anything I was only gone for five years imagine people that are gone for like 15 20 years you know but um I the reason I tell you that is because I I went from 
Gainesville to California and California to Indiana because I wanted to be in a relationship and I had a I had a house in Indiana with my son who's 19, you know, he's like a feral child, you know what I mean? He's like, "What's up, man? I just smoke weed. Leave me alone, pops." So that's my house and then my girlfriend and I have another house. Neither house was mine. And that that idea that I've never had a home, I think really resonated with me in that I never really felt like this was my place. Like it, everything else was somewhere else and I just felt very unsafe. And I think that lack of safety, that PTSD that relates to that, where do you end up when you feel completely alone? You end up in the only place where you always feel alone and that's prison. I'm 14 or 15 and I had a friend of mine over. Me, my brother, and a friend of mine were, were sitting in the room and we were playing video games, doing something. You know, just hanging out, just being kids. And the door busts open, and it's my sister's dad, and he starts screaming at us, you know, where's my Coke? And me and my brother are looking at each other, we're like, what? He's like, you fuckers are going to give me my Coke, or I'm going to beat the shit out of you. Like, left it in his pants pocket and threw him in the fucking washing machine. And for the listeners, you mean cocaine, correct? Yes, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> 100% cocaine. Um, nah, 100% pharmaceutical grade, pharmaceutical grade <laughs> cocaine. Um, yeah, and he... he Left him in the in his pockets, put him in the washer. Never, never came, never apologized, never even. There was no, hey guys, listen. Um, you know, there was nothing. Sorry it, about the whole cocaine, cocaine thing. thing. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, in hindsight, I don't know how the fuck you apologize for that, anyways. But still, saying something. Hey dudes, I'm not gonna kick your guys' ass. You know, something. I don't know. That was, and like I said, it was just not a good place for me to be, regardless. So. So when you get to, um, you get out at 18 from Juvie, uh, just briefly, because I, I definitely want to uh, talk about your experiences when you got home, but I, I really got to know, because I've only heard war stories, Daniel, please, for the listener, for somebody who, you know, we have so many incarcerated Americans that just about everybody listening is going to know someone or be related to someone that has had this experience. So I think the experience of, um, and the, the perception of being incarcerated, I think it's starting to soften. And that's what I would like this show to do is to sort of humanize it. But the only way to do that is to expose the raw nerve that is this traumatic experience. You go away, they lock a door, your friends and family put money on your commissary, they spend thousands on the phone. If you're lucky, they visit or they don't. And they're completely... financial position to send money like that so it's not I mean you, you gotta think these kids aren't coming from you know white collar homes they're coming from blue collar homes at best it doesn't have the extra money to send you a hundred dollars a week so that you can eat food that's edible you know I right mean, so, so you know and I think that that's I, I want to touch on that but what I was trying to get to is that when that door locks you kind of know well, I've got to call or I can't. I've got to put commissary on or I can't afford it. I have to visit or I can't get down there. You know the mechanics of that. What people don't know, even the people related to us don't know, is the trauma that you experience on a daily basis in jail and prison. Even if you uh, make it okay for yourself and it's not full of fights and gangs, okay. it's still, you're, you're it's constantly okay. terrorized about... Is this guard going to do this? Is my bunkie going to flip out? Am I ever going to go home? What happens if someone dies? That's how you live 24 hours a day. That's serious, serious PTSD. So the one thing that I have never been exposed to, but I've heard war stories of, is the juvenile facilities in the state of Florida. I've heard them referred to as gladiator camps. I've heard that the corrections officers bet on these kids fighting. I've heard them setting each other on fire. So can you, can you tell us what that experience was like, Daniel? Um, it's uh, it's honestly I'm a bit jaded. Uh, I have been in that situation or that environment as a kid, you know, not just once but twice, and it's not for the average person. I it's a, it, it's a horror. I would think, um, you know, like I said, I'm a bit numb to it, just because you know I was familiar with it, but most people aren't. And that's that's the sad, realistic, you know, view is that it is a, it is a horror, it is a, it's a nightmare as a kid. Um, if you don't know how to fight or defend yourself, one of two things are going to happen. You're going to learn. 
or you are going to be a victim. And that means uh, your food is going to get taken. Uh, you are going to get constantly harassed, bullied, um, teased, teased, yeah, all kinds. Like, and, and is like, there anybody there physical? To is there anybody to protect you? The people that are supposed to be are. It is. It's. It's almost laughable to them. Um, oh, let's take this kid over here who beats people up from those dorms and put him against this kid over here. And I like this kid. You know what I mean? Like that's. That's. That's a real thing. That is something that happens. Do not kid yourself. There are guards that set up fights and bet on it. And, you know, the kid that loses or gets beat up bad enough, he gets thrown in a hole until his licks heal. And then he's let out because guess what? There's no proof. You're in confinement. You're not allowed to use the phone. So you can't call your mom or you can tell them about this. And, you and often there, there isn't anyone to call anyway. If you're lucky. That's if you're lucky. One of the things that I found astounding when I got to Lake Butler, which is the reception center here in Florida, you go from county jail, you go to Lake Butler. There's three of them now, but it used to only be Lake Butler, um, the um, regional medical center, the intake center. Uh, now they have Central Florida and they have South Florida. And I think they have one in North Florida. So there may be four reception centers now, if I'm not mistaken. But it used to just be Lake Butler. If you went to prison in Florida, everybody went through Lake Butler. They called it the Wild Wild West because it was just insane there. They had a couple of guards throughout the 70s and 80s that were killing people, and they would bury their bodies straight up and down in the ground so that when feds would come in and look for missing people, they couldn't find them because they would be running the sonar detector over, and they couldn't find where the graves were. It took John Stossel in 2020 uh, to investigate to that eventually get the feds here. Boot Hill. It is an actual spot. Oh, this is actual, right. actual information. This is yeah, so so one of the things I was astounded at when I got to Lake Butler is... In Butler, um, they have a jar. It is a jar full of teeth. Yeah, yeah. It is a jar full of teeth that they will show you, and they will tell you, we take these. These are our teeth, and they will knock your teeth out and put them in that jar. Yep. And, uh, you know, there's uh, you can see brick walls where there's holes in the brick walls where they make people stand there with their nose holding a quarter in the brick wall for so long that it's left indentations. Um, you know, rats in the kitchen. It's just, and now uh, they have all of the people with terminal illnesses and lifers there as well. So you're coming into prison for the first time. Maybe you've got two years, three years, four years. Uh, you coming in with people who haven't been classified yet. We touched on this on an earlier episode. People that are for, there for 10, 15, 20 years. Your bunkie may be a murderer. Rape, and it's murder, extremely dangerous of, situation in, to be in. Insanely violent crimes that you are just, you, the guy that stole your own car. You right. know, that are sitting next to you, and you're like, where how, am I? How did I get here? And out of all those horrifying situations, the thing that I was astounded at most, Daniel, was this idea of disappearing people. Uh, the idea that I'm a guard, you don't have family to call. If you had family and loved ones, you would have had a lawyer. You wouldn't be here anyway. So the chances are you don't have enough support for me to torment you, I can make your life a living hell. And I saw some corrections officers get verbal with it and say, I will make you disappear. I'm wondering if, you know, th what I saw at Lake Butler and then the prisons I was at afterwards, uh, how comparable is that to the daily trauma that you saw at the juvenile facilities? I mean, I I've heard that it's just way worse. Oh, well, the, uh, the juvenile system is a lot, a lot more violent. I will say that is that the fights are there and like they used to have like Saturday night fights where it was like you were fighting. Guess what? All the doors are open. You know, you are going to fight or somebody's going to come in your room and just, you know, tee off on you. And that's, that's not an option. So, you know, you've got to fight. You have to defend yourself. That's just that's the, the, the name of the game. That is the beast. Right? So you're there for a year or two and then they just go, OK, go now. Be There's no counseling. There's no education. There's no mental health. Well, they, well sure. They have these, you know, school programs and sure they have a, a counselor. If this counselor's caseload is is so full and they're trying to get through each and every one of these people that you get maybe two minutes and they're going to ask you three questions. If you go to say something, they'll say, hey, put in a request and boom, you're out the door. You can't object. You get a, you object. Boom, you're going to get your ass kicked by the guard standing right outside you can't even hey wait i want to talk there's no none of that put it in writing and send me a request and we'll talk about it which they get denied and they get thrown away no yeah ever... so the request system for the listeners and you know as our as our guests and i are talking a lot of this stuff just seems super familiar so i want to take time i don't want to interrupt our guests but i want to take time to explain for the listeners the request system the request system in the department of corrections is a way to put you off you have nothing but time now, in your mind, 
you have legal work you need to get done, you're trying to get a GED, you're trying to get a college education, you're trying to get someone on your visitors list, you're on a timeline. To them, they think you have four years, five years, six years. I'm overworked, underpaid. I've got a caseload with 80 guys on it. So put in a request. Those requests go into the circular file, you know, the trash can, the, they, you never see it. They're trained to always say no. They never know the answer to anything ever. So you're never able to get anything done. Now, I dealt with that as an adult who had had a family and a career. I can only imagine what it's like when you're still a child. You're 18 years old. You're dependent. Now you're dependent on the system who you've gone from your home life, which didn't care about you, and now this system that doesn't care about you. So, I, you know, just they, they release you from this, Daniel. You get nothing done while you're there. It probably made you more terrified, added to your PTSD. And obviously, I mean, it's evidence... Angry, and, and you know, so you're only out for a year, and then you're back in county. What happened that land, landed you your first uh, prison charge? Well, I um, I didn't have, uh, like I said, I, I didn't have any place to really go. My mom, uh, her husband at the time, allowed me to use the address um, that they had so that I would be released, but I wasn't allowed to stay there. So I didn't have anywhere to stay. Um, I was staying with friends if I was lucky, and I met some guys on the street. Literally, uh, this cat named. Zach and another kid named Cody. And, uh, Always a Zach and a Cody. It's, it's damn Zach. Every fucking time. So you meet somebody named Zach, just nice to meet you, how do you do, and then run, because you're going to jail. At least I am. Now, <laughs> um, but and, like, I, I didn't have anywhere to go, and uh, this kid had a house, and it, like his mom was heavily into drugs. She did not care who was coming and going or whatever, and so I ended up hanging out with these guys. I'd known him for like two or three days, and I get in the car, and the next thing I know... Cody's going through this dude's front door, like like walking into this guy's house. I'm sitting in the car with Zach, and I'm like, you know, I'm kind of freaking out. Like, what the fuck? And I hear some, some shit going on. I never went in the house. I never went in the house. I was charged with uh, burglary of an occupied dwelling, uh, and I was sentenced to three and a half, almost four years in prison. It's my very first, you know, uh, adult offense. Um, I had had my juvenile record expunged, or... Um, sealed because I went and completed the program so they didn't charge me with any of my juvenile stuff because when you're an adult they can't really bring up your juvenile shit um, unless it's in a crime pertaining from one to the other um, so I was sentenced to almost four years and my very first day at Butler West I had been at Butler for four days and they sent me, no, five days and they sent me over to the West Unit and very first day there walking in the dorm and I hear these two guys arguing and one of them starts to run and the other one is chasing him with a belt and five locks on it. Oh my god. Yeah, the dude, dude didn't speak any English. He was screaming at him in Spanish. I caught like half of it. But it was apparently the dude had tried to rape him and he went around and got all of his buddies locks and beat this dude's head in. Like wow. it, As the guy's running he grabs a mattress. He's trying to cover himself with it and just swinging around and he hits him as he's coming around trying to get to the officer station he hits him in the shower and I didn't see the, I didn't see the hits but I saw the swings and I knew enough to know that those five locks weren't um, weren't being nice they're not forgiving and that was my very very first like like five minutes into the dorm at Butler at this point you've been in the juvenile facility so you use the word numb and I would imagine that seeing this type of violence you're numb to it. And so I wanted to give you my first experience with that. I had been in fights as a kid, just like everybody has. I've seen fights in bars. And your normal human instinct is, at least for me, is compassion yes, or empathy. Compassion. You want to dive in. And if somebody's getting yeah, if somebody's getting just beat up, you want to pull somebody off of someone. You want to try to help somebody. So um, I go to Lake Butler. I'm there for five weeks. Everybody's off to their own camp, and they I, I stayed there for almost five weeks. So I go in, and I do all my testing, and the lady sits me down, and she says, well, you got perfect scores, uh, 12.9s all the way down, and we need educators. I can't tell you where you're going, but I can tell you know you can tell me where you don't want to go. And in Florida, unlike other states, they try to send you as far away from your family as possible. It's a way to punish you. It's a way to keep the money in the system. Down. Right. It's a way to get, you know, it travel costs more. It's the whole thing is a, is a giant 
scam to make money and to and to hurt you. That's it's punitive. That's what the whole deal is. So she said, where do you not want to go? And I said, well, I've heard I don't want to go to Columbia and I don't want to go to ACI. So I get on a bus. There's three sets of people on the bus, Jackson, Graceville and ACI. Now, Graceville is a private prison. So I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to Graceville. This is great. They got ESPN. It's got air conditioning. This is going to be fine. I'll just make it through my time and go home. Uh, they get all the way to the Graceville and they don't call my name. They turn the bus back around and take me to ACI. Little did I know that when you tell them where you don't want to go, that's exactly that's where, where they send you. So I get to ACI and uh, as soon as I get off the bus, the CEO, big, huge guy, about 6'4", 320, looks at everybody there and he goes, well, you got three choices, man. You can fuck, fight, or check in. And I'm like, fuck? <laughs> I don't... <laughs> I don't want to do any of those other things. So uh, I had to fight one time uh, in the idle dorm before you get moved to your regular camp. I had a guy that kept coming to sit on my bed. And after three or four days, I asked him, you know, hey, this is my because your little area, your little bunk area is your only area in your entire life. That's it. And I, you know, asked him, I was like, dude, you can't just be sitting on my bed. And we ended up fighting over it. After that, I never really got messed with. But I get over to my main dorm, and the first guy that starts talking to me is this young African-American kid. Uh, you know, he's probably like 24, 25, and he's into sports, and we're watching the NFL, and he could tell I knew a lot about sports. So we kind of, you know, started talking, and we talked for a couple days about it. His name was DB. Seemed like a nice guy. Now, I'm up on a top bunk, and they've got single bunks in the center area. And I see him every day. He goes and sits on this real gay guy's bed, you know, and uh, they sit and they talk for hours. And I don't know all these little games that people play. I've had no experience with any of this. I have no idea what's going on. I'm like, oh, he's just friends with a gay guy. That's cool. He seems open minded, you know. So uh, I hear one day this this gay dude starts screaming. No, David. No, that's his name. David DB. They call him David. Or they call him DB, but his name is David. No, and he takes his radio, smashes it on the floor, picks up his lock, and just starts beating the shit out of this poor gay gay kid. Just beating him to death, you know? And I'm having to sit there, frozen, and I just remember thinking, it was my first time in my life that, like, I had to, like, watch something horrible happen and do nothing about it. I just felt completely paralyzed, and it still sticks with me to this day. It's, like, super traumatic, you know? And we just chalk it up to like, oh, this is just normal everyday shit, but it's not normal. But yeah, and it's not. And it's not okay that, that, you know, you're subjected to that, especially like the way that there is no, there's no differentiating. Um, You're a criminal no matter what crime that you did. Well, I I do think that there is a difference. I think there's a difference between somebody who who did a crime like, you know, sexual crime or violence. And I, you know, stole my own car or, hey, this dude just, you know, raped. And kids like there's there's a big difference in that and I feel like that needs to be you know addressed and that need there, there needs to be some kind of separation and I think that that is another reason why the violence is so high like it, you know because you have these people who are completely comfortable doing these heinous things to another human being and they're put in with somebody who is like wow you know the, the only thing that they're thinking during this is how why can't I can't stop this right like, you know, Those groups of people shouldn't be shouldn't together. Be together. Right. Yeah, they right. should be completely you know, separated, but that's not. So your first uh, trip uh, through Lake Butler, um, and you're doing a three-year bit prison bid, um, what was your family support like that and, uh, at that point? And if you didn't have a lot of family support, can you explain what you have to do financially i mean did you have to find a hustle did you have to you know that's the thing in prison is if you don't have family support there's barely enough food to eat if you want to have a snack at night if you want to have hygiene products you've got to figure out a way to do those things so explain you know a couple of your key experiences and how you survived those few years um i was lucky i was sent to uh, madison which um I mean, it's not it's not a great camp, and none of them are. But as far as like on the violent scale, it, it wasn't top tier. There was still a lot of violence, obviously, but it wasn't any place like, uh, you know, uh, FSP or anything like that. Uh, FSP is Florida State Prison. It's very well known prison. You can Google it. Movies were made there, um, but it's and that was one of the <laughs> roughest prisons there is. It's just 
um, part of that whole boot hill, people disappearing. Um, right, Rayford, the triangle. Rayford, yep. the, uh, yep, the iron triangle. So, um, <clears throat> anyways, uh, I was sent to Madison, um, and I, I, I got maybe, I could count on one letter from my grandmother a year, um, every year, for three years straight, I would get one letter, and that was on my birthday. Um, my mom, she would write once or twice a year. I, you know, I never got mail. Um, as far as, like, getting commissary, I think in the three years I was there, I maybe got money four times, and it was randomly. But, you know, just, you know, somebody felt bad or they were thinking about it, and they had a couple extra bucks, and they sent it to me. But, like, I, I had to get a hustle. I uh, I was putting laundry, which is... Uh, it, before you get your hustle, Daniel, I want to... How did it make you feel? Um, it, no, it sucked. It was... It, Emotionally, because I didn't part of you like you want to forgive people and understand yeah. and not be bitter. And you, you know, at the end of the day, you lie your head down at night and you go, Well, I put myself here, my family's just trying to survive. That's part of you, but part of you feels hurt yeah. and let down. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's, you know, there's, there's plenty of times where I just, you know, I felt like complete shit. You know, what is wrong with me? That, like, was I that bad of a person that nobody, I'm not worth that to anyone? I was that. I was that shitty, and I like. I mean, honestly, you know, we're yes, you you are. Where I was. You are that shitty. I am. I am. You're the I worst person shit. I know. WBIK baby, but no, and it, you know, and it, it it does something to you uh, when they call mail every day, and you don't you don't get a letter, you don't you know you don't hear from anybody, and not just that, but it sets a tone for other people's watching. Nobody cares about this dude. You know, this dude's you know, it, and it, it can make you a victim. People know that you're desperate. You know they. So you you know you just kind of have to you know be real careful and like they said you gotta find a hustle and to get to my hustle I was I was putting laundry and I didn't really know much about the hustle game and I'd been in laundry for like two weeks and a guy from my dorm who had been in laundry before um, but was not anymore he's working outside the gate on a, on the side of the road picking up trash and uh, he said man man where's your where's your money and I was like dude I don't I don't have I don't. Yeah. He's like, you're in laundry, man. I was like, what? I didn't. I didn't even know. He's like, dude, listen. Here's what you gotta do. And apparently, like that dorm that I was put in, they didn't have. I was the first person that worked in laundry from that dorm. So they were like, here's what you do. You talk to the people that run, you know, the washing machines in the laundry room. And you say, hey, my dorm's gonna pay this much to get extra bleach in their wipes. I've got a list of guys. You gotta go around and tell guys. I got a service. You want your stuff bleached extra good? Like, because if you put your clothes in laundry, they come back smelling brown. Worse, worse than you send them in. Yeah, they come back brown. It's yeah, crazy. It's not, yeah. It's weird. Um, so people, that was that was a hustle. And for people that did get money in, you know, they would pay you a little bit extra. You know, if you threw their bag in the special wash that had the extra bleach, you know. And so I, uh, I got on that. And I was fortunate. Chris, Chris full game. Yep, Chris full game for your, you know, your visitation blues. Yep. You want the you want the creases in them? Well, we got irons down there, so we can get that going for you too. Like, That's you know. one thing I never understood is the the guys who got super <laughs> dressed up for visitation. So you had these guys, they would yeah, they would prepare for like two or three days. It wasn't get even a, a girl; it was like their aunt, you know. And they would get that lined up, fade haircut. Uh, they would get the, uh, a crease in their pants, shiny new boots. They'd, They'd borrow people's shoes. shoes. Yeah, yes. separate visitation shoes. And, you know, I just kept thinking, like, you know, ha has your family ever gotten here and been like, man, I was really disappointed you're in prison, but God, look yeah, at you. you. Look I sure, good, you? I sure am you proud of you now. You shining in here. <laughs> Maybe you should stick around. This looks good on you. That never happened no. one time. No. Yeah, so, so, yeah, that was um, that was the hustle there. And that was at the main unit. And then they sent me to the work camp. Uh, and they put me, because my custody was low enough to get to the work camp, but I couldn't work outside the gate. I went right into laundry there. It was from, you know, one lunch, because I knew the machines and everything. By then, I'd been there for a year and a half, almost two years, working in this, this laundry room. So I did that, and uh, I EOS from Madison. And, uh, EOS is end of, end of sentence. Yep. End of sentence. And, yeah, so I worked, uh, I worked at the work camp and laundry there, and I had that hustle going. And then I worked outside the gate. So you, so you get home and, you know, you make it through. And I would imagine like after Lake Butler and after Juvenile, uh, working in the laundry at Madison, you probably had it on cruise control at this point. Okay. In the last six months before you went home and you're looking to go to work release or you're looking to go home. I did make the work release. At, at that point. For like less than six months at the end of that sentence. Did you have a plan? 
No, I was sent to Lake City. I worked at Ken's Barbecue. I worked at Ken's Barbecue in Lake City. They sent me there. And for those who don't know, like when you go to work release, that's that, like it's all a money maker. They take fifty five percent of your check. Everything that you make, they take fifty five percent of it. Off rip goes to them, no matter what. Now whether it be for for fines, they say ten percent of this goes going to fines that you owe us, which is money for them, uh, or you know cost of housing or whatever it may be. And food they bring, that you don't get. Food that you don't even get or eat. Nothing. Like, if 55% of your check goes to them, and then they give you 45%, and it goes into a draw. Now, out of that draw, you are allowed to take up to, I think it is 100 bucks a week. I think that's your draw. It was 100 bucks a week at the time. I think since then they've lowered it. I think they lowered yeah, it. 675. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you are allowed to get 100 bucks a week. And now, here's the thing is you're working, and you're, you're, you know, you're working as much as you can because you don't want to be stuck at that work release center all day. You will, and that's another thing that, you know, a lot of these companies that hire guys that are in work release, they know. They know I can call this guy any time of day and he's going to show up. He's not going to call him sick because he doesn't, you know what I mean? It's like, you know. For bare minimum. For nothing. For nothing. So they'll, they'll give you a job and they'll hire you at the least amount that they can. And if you're cool enough to get a spot like I did, I worked for Ken's Barbecue. Oh, uh, which by the way, we commend businesses for hiring Absolutely. incarcerated individuals, you but let's not kid ourselves. They're getting a tax break to hire you break, and you're and, not getting any of that. And the wage, <laughs> because they know that you're going to take the job. The wage is also low. And I would say just to those companies, we do appreciate you guys hiring us. It means the world to us more than you know, but give us a fair shake. You know, if we're working hard and we're the hardest working guy you've got, you know, at least at least give us the fair bit. That's all. Um, but anyways, moving along. Uh, so, but that was I was hired at Ken's Barbecue, and I was lucky enough that they said, "Hey, we will pay you eight dollars an hour on the books, and we'll pay you another two off the books that we'll save for you." And I said, "For you know, for every hour you work, you're still getting two two uh, two dollars an hour here, tax free. It'll be kept in the safe." Corey Bannister was the owner at the time. Big shout out to Corey Bannister and Ken's Barbecue in Lake City. If you ever buy, go. It's great barbecue. Anyways. Um, Wait, are you doing plugs? Did you I'm just get paid, get paid for that? Well, I'm going to try. I'm going to hit Holy shit. The show's <laughs> only like four episodes long. We're already no. getting sponsorships. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, and, and I was fortunate enough that I, I had almost 3000 2000 and change saved whenever I got out. But um, So where'd you go? <laughs> my mom, because I had worked in, you know, she was hitting me up for money while I was in work release. She was high on drugs. She had developed a very bad crack habit at the time. Um, yeah, and so like I, I, she had actually asked me to send her money, which I did. Um, while I was there in work release, I was sending money to her. Um, I got out. I had you know, like I said, almost three thousand dollars, two grand and change, and within like two weeks, three weeks, it was gone. Um, she had hit me up, you know, for rent money. I had obviously I needed clothes. I had no clothes, nothing. nothing. I had to, you know. Buy, buy outfits and stuff uh, and between you know getting clothes and my mom hitting me up for loans or, or you know rent to stay at her place it was it was gone yeah so I think that's one of the that's one of the things that when I was teaching classes in prison I, I taught um, mental health courses and seven habits of highly effective people and and the thing that I really tried to have, difficult discussions with with guys going home was codependency i think it's the you know people talk about well find god you'll be all right find a job you'll be all right stay away from drugs and alcohol you'll be all right get a ged you'll be all right the thing that we don't ever discuss that permeates our life at a very deep level and it's sticky and messy and it's not black and white and there's no right answer is codependency people move back in with their mom then their mom wants some money for rent. Obviously, she deserves it. But then you don't have any money to save to get out. Now you're stuck in this relationship. Nobody knows who borrowed what money from whom. Now take that idea and extrapolate it out to baby mamas, girlfriends, exes, bad relationships, people that supported you. Now you feel like you've been bought and paid for in a relationship at times. You know, people, you know, there's a lot of predatory people that will send you money or try to come visit you only so that you turn around and end up in a relationship with them. There's a lot of guys who play that side of it that, that try to con people into relationships. And, uh, you know, I just want you to take maybe like the sort of 3000 foot view here of, I know that it's a sticky situation. I know it's your mom. I know you love her, but that, that idea of codependency, do you think that that may have been one of the traps that, that set you on a, on a bad path? Uh, 
Absolutely. Um, let me let me go ahead and start. Um, my my very first time ever in trouble. I wasn't sent to a juvenile program, luckily, but I got arrested my eighth grade year um, because I had marijuana at school. Uh, marijuana that my mom had given me. Um, and this is at uh, Tuttle. No, not Tuttle. Um, Macintosh. Macintosh uh, in Sarasota, Florida. I was my very last. I never took any of the um, the FCATs for you know you take them at the end of the eighth grade year. Never took any of them. Not one. They still passed me, just to get me out of out of high school. But um, that was that was you know marijuana that my mom had given me. When I got to high school, my mom was having me and my brother sell pot for her. I, she's dead. Uh, she passed away almost two years ago, and you know, love my mom. Uh, did she do the best that she could? Yes, uh, was the best she could. That was your mom saying hello right there. Was, she just knocked the mixer on the floor. Was <laughs> was the best she could. Still shitty. Yes, you know. Um, I, I I got a very very skewed image of right and wrong because here's this person that you know has has raised me from a child, but also everything that they are teaching me is fucking wrong. Uh, I'm you know I'm I'm upset, and you could ask my brother, you know the same. He would tell you. She, we were not, we were not raised right. Our view of things is tragically skewed because of the way that we were brought up, and um, you feel like it's hard to find your footing. Yeah, very much so. Um, I don't, I don't. I am responsible for me now, but did I get a fair shake thus far? No. Uh, has it affected me? Absolutely. Um, but I am aware of this. I know this. And that's up to me to be extra diligent as far as the decisions I make and the reasons why I make them now because I have to question the way that I view things. You know what I mean? Like, like morally. Your perspective is wrong. Perspective right. is, well, it, you know, I feel like it was. I feel like it's better now. Um, but it was. The way that I viewed things, everything, was, it was completely off based on the fact that, you know, the, the person that I trusted in to, to shape and mold and guide me in the right direction and the things that I was taught are okay weren't you know and uh anyways so to, to well, bring... I, I dana i really appreciate your honesty there and i think that you know we talked a little bit about before the show and i think what we'll do is we're going to do a two-part series here with daniel we're going to make this first episode uh everything that sort of led up to incarceration and that experience and then when we come we'll come, come back for part two for daniel we'll do another hour on his experiences uh, now that he's been home for a, an extended period of time, and uh, and I think that's the way to do it. Because I want to I want to dive uh, deeper into Daniel's been home now for ten years successfully, and uh, I want to dive deeper into some of the triumphs that he's had to have. But there's still a lot of stuff in there that comes up in. So right. So the do you think when you're when you're when you're saying that you look at it as I don't want you to describe yourself as bad or wrong, but but bad survival or shitty survival skills maybe Terrible. or um when you're raised by somebody who's involved with an addict or who is an addict themselves i would imagine that that codependency that sense of manipulation and like who's i gotta get I over on you that. before you get over on me that, well, i was just getting to that is yeah. like and i had gotten home and out of prison like i said i was released with you know almost almost three thousand dollars and within you know for a month it was completely gone i'm staying at my mom's house who is a drug addict she is working as a caretaker um i won't i won't say the guy's name and i have felt so bad about this but my mom had me steal money from this guy you know who she's supposed to be taking care of and you know i i was desperate at the time this is my mom you know what i mean now she had me sell drugs and you know it's it's my mom and i I did, because I didn't want to lose where I was staying. I didn't, you know, I was I was young and I was stupid, and I definitely shouldn't have done it, but I ended up taking money from this guy that she was supposed to be taking care of. She told me exactly where to go, how to take it. And, and it's just like, you know, and that's what I mean when I say, like, the person that, that I was depending on to, to raise me and to guide me was guiding me to do these types of things. And, you know, I, I definitely should not have done that. I don't think that I should have been, you know, influenced too either. So, um, but yeah, now that's that's. I wanted to get to that because I knew where you were going. I can see exactly. And yes, there is. Then there's that codependency, and it's boom. You know, I'm your mom, and she, you know, she relied on me to steal for her. So it's just rough. It's a very rough 
thing. I think I'm looking at it very raw now. I've breezed over it, at least in my mind, recollecting. But now it's the first time I really like picked it apart, and it's nice. It's it's you know it's even worse than I thought it was. Yeah, <laughs> just fucking sad. Well, I mean, I I'm hoping that this uh, show is a healing, cathartic experience for people, and we have a chance to look deeper and more introspectively at ourselves and sort of the imperfections of us as humans. I mean, we are the protagonist and antagonist. We are the hero and anti-hero in all of our own stories. And so it's it's easy for a legislator or a senator or a lawyer or a judge to look at you and say, this is very black and white. You did a crime, you do the time. It's different when we're having this conversation on more complex levels. I love my mother, but also she did some horrible things that led, I take responsibility for my actions, but also I was influenced. You see that imperfection there? I think people want us to say all or the other, and it's just not. There's such a heavy mix. And so how are you supposed to survive and not feel like you're drowning? Daniel, how how have your relationships been affected by this? Um, I've had a very, very hard time um, building you know, meaningful relationships with people, not, you know, not just women, even friends. Um, I'll get to this point where, like, you know, I'll, I think I even went through it with you, where I, yeah. I I started to care for an individual, and that, you know, like, Lee is my brother. I love him to death. He can't get rid of me now. Too bad, buddy. It's too late. But, <laughs> I mean, there was a point until, like, I even, you know, learned that there there weren't people that had an agenda other than my well-being. You know, I didn't. I didn't have that, and it took a while to get comfortable with it. I would want to push them away, or you know, or run, because I felt like no matter what happened, I was I was gonna get let down or hurt. It was, it was a, a difficult thing to get past for me. Um, luckily, I had people like you, Mac, Taisha Stevenson, my wonderful children. I'm very fortunate today. We're glad to have you here, Daniel. I really appreciate you joining us for this episode. Now, in in episode two, uh, we'll try to get it up later this week. Breaking the law.